Welcome to The Checkup, brought to you by Barry Nelson's Health Law Team. The Checkup is a series of interviews, case studies and stories with some truly interesting and innovative people from all kinds of backgrounds, lawyers, doctors, authors, cyber experts and more. Together we provide a regular dose of all the latest happenings in healthcare and tackle some of the big issues within the industry. If you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch with our team, head to bnlaw.com.au. Welcome back to The Checkup. I'm Sarah Carlisle, a Senior Associate in Barry Nilsson's Health Law team. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Emma Harmon, to bring you the third and final instalment of our Kelly Lane podcast series. Thanks for joining me, Emma. Thanks for having me. Earlier in the series... We spoke with both an obstetrician gynaecologist and a psychologist to discuss the unique features of Kelly's case. Today, we'll be discussing recent reforms to Queensland abortion laws and how they compare to the law in the rest of the country. Emma is also a senior associate in our health law team and specialises in advising healthcare providers in regards to both negligence claims and disciplinary issues. So she's well-placed to explore this topic with me today. We're going to look at what the law looked like in the 1990s when young Kelly Lane was facing all of those unwanted pregnancies and how it has evolved over the last 20 years, culminating in the most recent reforms which came into force in Queensland in December 2018. And can I just say, Sarah, the series so far has been wonderful and really novel and interesting to hear the different perspectives of the Kelly Lane story from an obstetrician and from a psychologist. So... It's been great. I'm glad you think so, Emma. Before we unpack the new Queensland legislation and how it compares to other states and territories and what exactly it means for both women and healthcare providers, let's take a look at the law in Queensland and indeed throughout Australia before the new legislation came into effect. Well, initially in Australia, in each state and territory, they adopted the English law that was in place at the time. This made it a criminal offence in the 1800s in Australia to terminate a pregnancy at any stage. There was one exception, um, and that is if the termination was required to save the mother's life. There was ambiguity over when this exception actually applied, which continued for some time, meaning that doctors who performed termination risked persecution of a criminal offence if a judge disagreed with their view that the exception applied. So, Emma, basically, a doctor was able to legally perform an abortion only if it was reasonably necessary to preserve the mother's life. Is that right? Yes. So, strictly speaking, that's right. Um, But what ended up happening was that the exception was interpreted quite broadly. Australian courts followed the approach taken by the UK courts in interpreting the exception. There was a landmark case in the UK in 1938 of the Queen and Bourne In that case, the defendant, Dr Bourne, was a prominent English gynaecologist who was persecuted for terminating a six-week-long pregnancy of a 14-year-old girl who'd been sexually assaulted by five off-duty soldiers. Dr Bourne defended their criminal charge on the basis that the woman's life was in danger because of the risk to her physical and mental health if the pregnancy continued. In that case, the court acquitted Dr Bourne and explained in the quite often quoted passage as follows. They said that the law is not that the doctor has got to wait until the unfortunate woman is in peril of immediate death and then at the last minute snatch her from the jaws of death. 
If the doctor is of an opinion on reasonable grounds and with adequate knowledge that continuance of the pregnancy will be to make the woman a physical or mental wreck, the jury are quite entitled to take the view that the doctor in these circumstances and in honest belief is operating for the purpose of preserving the life of the woman. Generally speaking, Australian courts have followed suit, meaning that abortion crimes have rarely been prosecuted. But there is still that worrying uncertainty of whether police would lay charges and whether a court would agree with a doctor's view that the termination was necessary to preserve the woman's life. So there was this risk for the woman and also the doctor that continued. Right. That certainly sounds like an old-fashioned and undesirable position. So have reforms been implemented in other states in Australia prior to December 2018 when the law in Queensland changed? Yes, yes, they have. So over the years, a number of reforms have been introduced. South Australia initially led the charge in 1969 by amending its criminal code to provide that abortion was lawful up to 28 weeks, provided that the doctor is of the opinion that more risk to the pregnant woman's life or to her physical or mental health would be posed by continuing rather than terminating the pregnancy. And this really represented a codification of the common law as it had been applied by the courts but it did provide a more liberal approach to accessing abortions than existed elsewhere in Australia at the time. Similar reforms were introduced in Western Australia um, in 1998. Um, In 2002, the ACT went further and was the first jurisdiction to decriminalise abortion. So this meant that in the ACT, there's no requirement to prove an abortion is necessary to preserve the woman's life or to prevent risk to her physical or mental health. Then we saw a whole string of reforms. So um, Victoria in 2008, Tasmania in 2013, and the Northern Territory in 2017 each passed modern laws which decriminalised abortion. Okay. So Queensland's not too far behind. All of those reforms are relatively recent then. But before we come to talk in some more detail about the most recent reforms in Queensland, what about New South Wales? If our listeners have been following the news in the last few weeks, they might have caught wind of this. But Emma, can you explain what's going on down there? Well, in New South Wales, abortion currently is still a crime. And as it stands, unlawful abortion is punishable by up to 10 years imprisonment. um, And the woman and or the doctor can be punished. But um, as listeners would be aware, an amending bill to decriminalise abortion, the Reproductive Health Care Reform Bill is currently being debated. Along with the, there's been a number of controversial proposed amendments included in the debate. The push for reform in New South Wales really started following a 2017 case there where a woman um, who the judgment says was coerced by a boyfriend to fall pregnant was convicted of attempting to procure a miscarriage. The facts were that she had been turned away from several clinics because her pregnancy was more than 20 weeks. So she ended up self-administering an abortion drug that she obtained on the internet at 28 weeks. In terms of the debate, well, last week, so 11pm on Thursday, 8 August, the New South Wales bill passed the lower house of parliament by 59 votes to 30 after a lengthy debate. A particularly controversial amendment, of which there were many, was that for terminations after 22 weeks, the woman required approval of a four-person hospital advisory committee rather than the standard two-doctor sign-off that is in other states. The bill in New South Wales still needs to pass the upper house there, 
but as it currently stands, it's similar to the law in other states where abortion is legalised up to 22 weeks, after which approval is needed by, from two doctors. So some of the amendments that I mentioned that were quite controversial that were debated um, are for the doctors to gain informed consent before performing the abortion and also um, there's a statutory requirement was proposed for doctors to consider whether counselling would be beneficial for the woman. And as you mentioned, Sarah, the bill was, um, attracted a huge amount of um, attention and divided party lines. Tony Abbott's been quoted a number of times, as has the Catholic Church. And then on the other side of the fence, the hashtag Arrest Us movement has seen a number of women state their full names and the year in which they underwent an illegal abortion in New South Wales to demonstrate that the law as it stands is really very outdated and out of step with reality. Okay, well, that's really interesting. Thanks for the update, Emma. And that's probably an appropriate point to press pause on the discussion of the legal position to now consider how all of this sits in Kelly Lane's context. So Kelly fell pregnant three times between 1992 and 1995 and before she gave birth to Tegan Lane in 1996. On the first and second occasions, Kelly accessed determination. She did so in secret, without the support or guidance of her parents or friends, as a very young woman. On the third occasion, for whatever reason, she didn't access determination. Instead, she delivered a baby at full term, and the baby was then given up for adoption. Again, that was all in secret. Kelly lived in New South Wales at the time, so in light of what we've just spoken about, Kelly was accessing these terminations under the old law, meaning she technically had to convince a doctor that the terminations were reasonably necessary for the preservation of her life. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, but there would be a fairly liberal interpretation of that exception, so that if her pregnancy posed a risk, in a doctor's view, to her physical and mental well-being that would generally be enough to make it lawful. Okay. Even so, I guess we can understand that it wouldn't have been particularly easy for Kelly to access an abortion back in the 1990s under the old law. In fact, both Kelly and her medical practitioner would have faced criminal conviction if questioned about the reason for the procedure and they failed to come up to proof on the medical necessity ground, which is a pretty scary concept for such a young woman. We get a sense of the difficulty Kelly faced, either with the medical practitioner's attitudes towards the situation or perhaps just with her own feelings of embarrassment and shame because we know that rather than terminate her third pregnancy, she delivered a baby at full term. She did this completely unbeknown to her family and friends and she did this, in fact, on the same day that she played in the grand final of a suburban water polo competition it strikes me that she really must have had some very deep reluctance to procure a termination, given the alternative meant putting herself in that incredibly difficult position. And faced with unplanned pregnancy number four in 1996, reports indicate that Kelly, in fact, sought to cross the border from New South Wales up to Queensland to, to attend an abortion clinic. We don't know why, perhaps she had heard of a particularly liberal or supportive clinic up here, but in any event, she was already 25 weeks pregnant at the time she presented to the clinic, and as is reported, she was refused access to a termination for that reason. We all know what happened next. 
unable to procure the abortion and facing her fourth unwanted pregnancy in as many years, Kelly gave birth to Tegan Lane and allegedly murdered the newborn baby. The records of hours and hours of Kelly's phone calls, which were intercepted by police during the investigation into the murder of Tegan Lane, were published by the Sydney Morning Herald following Kelly's conviction in 2010. Those phone taps revealed that Kelly felt paralysed by the prospect of telling her father that she was pregnant and bringing shame on the family name. In one conversation with her fiancé, Kelly said, I'll cop whatever they say to me. They can call me a slut or a moron or a dickhead or whatever. It all seems to be out of my hands. Like, I really don't have any choices. I didn't have any choices then. I've got no choices now. Of course, Kelly's case is really unique, but her story and, and that quote, it really does highlight the problems with the old law, I think, doesn't it, Emma? It does. And when looking at reforming the Queensland law, the Law Reform Commission here provided a report which quite nicely summarises the problems with the old law. And it wrote, the lack of certainty under the current provisions as to when a termination is lawful negatively impacted on the accessibility and the availability of termination services by causing fear and stigma for women and reluctance by some health practitioners to provide such services. So how have the 2018 reforms in Queensland addressed this problem? Well, Queensland has followed the other states and territories to remove abortion from the criminal code, thus decriminalising it and treating it as a health issue. That all came about in December of last year, 2018. So in keeping with other states, in Queensland, abortion is lawful up to 22 weeks gestation and beyond 22 weeks provided to medical practitioners consider it reasonable. So there's no longer a requirement to establish a medical need that is to preserve the life or well-being of the mother for the performing the abortion, is that right? That's right. Which means that if a woman makes a decision that she wants an abortion, she can access that service without having to convince a medical practitioner of the reason for doing so. Yes, which is consistent with the proposed bill in New South Wales and the law in all other states and territories aside from South Australia. So confusingly for both um, women trying to access an abortion and medical practitioners, each jurisdiction do have different cutoff points for the gestational age at which abortion remains lawful and or the opinion of a second medical practitioner is needed. Just going through the states to highlight how this plays out, ACT is the only jurisdiction to completely remove abortion from criminal law. In Victoria, abortion is legal up to 24 weeks and thereafter with two medical practitioners um, signing off and considering it necessary on physical, psychological or social grounds. In Western Australia, abortion is legal up to 20 weeks if performed by a medical practitioner who has to obtain the women's informed consent. In the Northern Territory, it's 14 weeks and between 14 to 28 weeks with a second doctor's approval. In Tasmania, it can be performed up to 16 weeks and thereafter with two doctors sign off. And as I mentioned in SA, abortion remains a crime punishable by up to life imprisonment. However, it can be performed if the exception applies up to 28 weeks and thereafter with two doctors sign offs. Okay, that is kind of confusing, but I guess to sum it up, all of the states and territories now have um, 
access to abortion legally up to a certain point gestation, but that point of gestation varies significantly. All of the states and territories except New South Wales currently. Um, But what else does the new legislation say other than when it's lawful to perform the abortion? Well, most um, reforming bills also have provisions for what's referred to as conscientious objectors. So these are medical practitioners who might not want to um, perform a termination because of their faith or for some other reason. Uh, Generally speaking, it's still a requirement for these conscientious objectors to provide the patient with a referral to another service. One of the controversial amendments that's been proposed in New South Wales was that there is no requirement for a medical practitioner who is a conscientious objector to refer the pregnant woman to another medical practitioner if that woman is under 20 weeks pregnant. That isn't included in the current form of the bill, um, but it was proposed. The reforms have also talked about safe access zone provisions And these mean areas surrounding abortion clinics where people cannot interfere with a person attending the clinic or cause them distress. There's been a recent High Court challenge to the constitutionality of these zones um, that was brought by anti-abortion protesters who argued that these safe access zones interfered with their implied right to freedom of political communication. The decision was widely publicised and the High Court decided that the validity of these zones um, was confirmed and was unanimously agreeing that the purpose of the laws, which was ultimately to protect a woman's right to health, safety, privacy and dignity when accessing abortion services, was a compelling objective that was compatible with the Constitution. Okay. So although there's that balancing factor there for conscientious objectors, um, the law probably strikes a good balance on the whole, and certainly the safe access zones seem like a good addition to the reforms to assist in removing stigma associated with women accessing termination. Um, In that sense, the reforms do look like they're a big step in the right direction, but I suppose only time will tell how significantly they will impact the way women approach these difficult situations, how equitable access to lawful abortion is throughout the state, and in particular, in regional communities and the practical implications of this new legislation for medical practitioners, particularly how the conscientious objector provisions will play out. That's right. Um, In summing up, there's been a lot of reform in the area that has been positive and seen abortion treated as a health issue now, not a criminal issue. But as you've pointed out, on the other hand, there still remains uncertainty and confusion, giving all of the varying requirements in the different states and territories. Um, And then there's also practical issues sometimes where there's difficulty in accessing termination services in some areas of the country. Yeah. Okay. Well, that wraps up our discussion of Australia's modern abortion law reforms. Again, a big thank you to Emma for joining me today to explain all of that. Thanks for having me. Um, And today's discussion also concludes our Kelly Lane series. It's certainly been an interesting case to explore. And no doubt we will continue to hear about Kelly Lane in the media in the context of ongoing action by the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology Innocence Initiative. The police have never found baby Tegan Lane and there are still a lot of questions and so much uncertainty surrounding the case. Although Kelly currently remains in prison, having served nearly 10 years of her sentence, 
The Innocence Initiative is now calling for urgent review of the murder case due to concerns over the adequacy of police investigation and the fairness of Kelly's criminal trial. I'll certainly be following the story with interest, and I'll be thinking about it in a whole new context, having explored it through the three unique perspectives we have for our podcast series. As always, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to The Checkup. If you'd like to know more or get in touch, just head to our website, bnlaw.com.au. Chat soon.